0: Welcome to the IWT Water and Wastewater podcast brought to you by Selenus, providing solutions for you and your customer to provide value. In today's podcast, you will hear Jeff Kiste discuss influent clarification and concepts that will help with product selection, jar testing, process control, and more. This session was presented as a Skype session If you would like further information, you can visit the Water and Wastewater site within the IWT Technical Training Resources site located on SharePoint. Okay, it's nine o'clock, so let's go ahead and start the webinar. Um, Thank you guys for joining. Uh, It's an effort that we're trying to put forth, and like Jeff said, it's uh, sometimes a primer for the wastewater training, the hands-on. Uh, but it also is uh, information to be given out to the commercial team and others such that uh, they have a better understanding of wastewater and all of the great things that uh, our team is doing, as well as the great products that are uh, available to uh, the wastewater uh, applications. So uh, here we go with uh, Jeff Kisti. Jeff is 30 years of experience, deep domain knowledge. He's one of our senior uh, consultants. He has a repertoire of various uh, types of of uh, disciplines, uh, flocculants, uh, defoamers, monitoring uh, type of uh, systems. Very unique and very novel approach to deep domain knowledge in, in various areas, especially in wastewater. Jeff owes a, a, a BS degree in biology from. Uh, the College of New Jersey. Uh, He has tremendous experience in wastewater chemistry, expert in flocculants, defomers, sludge dewatering, dissolved air flotation, and you've heard his expertise the last webinar. He also has uh, great experience in and expertise in influent clarification, odor control, Uh, all of the things that you would want to know about wastewater, Jeff definitely has that background. He's also authored many papers. Uh, Jeff, I think you also have a a couple of papers in WEFTEC and also uh, part of uh, a number of different patents and always looking for uh, the very next best thing to bring to our wastewater commercial team. So with that, Jeff, please go ahead and begin your webinar.
1: All right. So... um we're going to talk about influent clarification, and I'll start by sharing a little story with you about this clarifier that we're looking at here. Uh, about two hours prior to me taking this photograph, and you could see right down to the bottom here, the water is beautifully clear at this time. The, I was on top of this clarifier with the customer, and he was. the bed was right up to the launders. It was, it was all preceded by a load of pin flock, and, and he was just so frustrated and said to me, oh, my God, this always happens to us. I just don't know what to do. We try adjusting the turbine. We try um, adding more polymer. We try blowing it down, and nothing ever seems to work. So I said to him, well, let me make a little change here. And I, I made a dramatic change in how much coagulant they were feeding. And two hours later, this is what it turned into. And that's, for the most part, that's most of the issues that people have with influent clarification. is not really understanding how powerful that coagulant dosage is. So I'm going to roll through this presentation at super high speed and hopefully leave a little bit of time at the end uh, in order to have a discussion. So you, what we're looking at doing here is taking water, such as the water on the left here, with turbidity from the river, treating it with a coagulant and then a flocculant, and knocking that turbidity out and having it go through two more um, steps, which is be sedimentation and filtration in an influent clarifier. So the most common type of influent clarifier is a solid contact clarifier and this is what it looks like from a from an above view and let's learn some basics about this so going into the solid contact clarifier we have the raw water and it's treated with the coagulant out here somewhere it goes into a what's called a draft tube and the draft tube on top of it has what's called a turbine which is really just a big centrifugal pump that runs at low rpm And what it's doing is it's using the draft tube as a suction to suck sludge off of the bottom and run it up so that the water that's coming in can mix with it, run through this pump, and then pump it out so it hits the outer walls of the reaction well and go back down and cycle round and around and around. So for those of you that are familiar with cycles of concentration and for instance, a boiler or cooling water, this thing is cycling up the solids so there's cycles of concentration going on here as well take for instance you have water that's coming in down here at the left that's coagulated with uh, say and has 50 milligrams per liter of solids then it's cycled up in the center of this in the reaction well uh, between 50 and 100 times so the main problem that occurs with this is that um, any Excess charge on those solids, if because we overfeed coagulant, for instance, will then get cycled up in the center in the reaction well 50 to 100 times. And when that happens, it causes all kinds of problems. It causes the bed to fluff up and it causes pin flock to happen and it causes solids carry over. So we're going to discuss that in quite a bit more detail coming up. I want to look at a couple other things with regard to the the, uh, the, the physical part of an influent clarifier. Take a look at this. We're going to address these areas. Uh, we're going to look at what's going on here. This is the solids contact zone A. Then there's a sludge blanket that's fluid. And that sludge blanket can be sucked back up and up into the draft tube and then recirculate around if we turn the turbine speed up, especially if that sludge is fairly fluid. The sludge concentrates on the bottom in what's called a slurry pool and then flows down to the bottom where it's removed via blowdown. And then there's a clarification zone. So when we're sampling these solids contact clarifiers, we're sampling at two points on, this, on the outside. We're sampling the lower draft tube, which is looking at the sludge that's getting pulled up inside. And then we're either sampling the upper draft tube here or the, the contact zone sample just outside of where the uh, turbine has pumped it up. So that has some influent water in. And by looking at the differential between these two points, we can adjust our turbine speed so that there's a between a 5 and, say, 15% difference in the solids. And that's how these things are adjusted. One other point is that the polymer feed it needs to be into the influent pipe or into the, um, the draft tube. One big mistake that we see in a lot of places is they drop the polymer feet into the top of the, uh, the, the contact zone, and they don't realize it, but right after this pump has pumped, there's really not much mixing going on down below. So the, the polymer then has to settle all the way down to the bottom and they get sucked back up and mixed around. And sometimes it may go into the clarification zone. So just a point that we need to take a look at. So let's look at the inside of these in some dry applications to get a dry view so you know what's going on. You could see at the bottom here the protruding of the, the lower draft tube, and that's inside of the, the reaction well. Another view, this is a giant clarifier. You can see the, uh, the turbine, which is basically looks like a big centrifugal pump impeller, Which way do you think that's turning? Is it turning to the right or is it turning to the left? Most people would think it's turning to the left, and that is not true. It's turning to the right so that it could suck sludge off of the bottom. And that thing normally is running somewhere between 2 and 6 RPMs in most of these applications. So when you go to a smaller solid contact clarifier, a lot of them have a speed control on the top, and normally, they're set up to run between 30 and 50%. One thing that people often do is they make a huge mistake. And they think that if they reduce the, the speed of the, of the recirculation of the, that the turbine's causing, they'll reduce their pin flock carryover, not realizing that it's because their coagulant's overdosed. So they'll have this thing turned way down. And that's a huge mistake. So you might just want to review some of this as part of a a service or prospecting effort as to what they're doing and why. But for the most part, once this level is set for a typical river that they're running, you never really make adjustments to the turbine speed. So let's look at at how we uh, make those adjustments. Uh, We we take 1,000 milliliter samples at the lower and upper draft tube areas, and we let them settle for, um, five minutes, and we, we're looking for between a 5 and a 20% differential. It's kind of site-specific. Uh, in most applications, the settled solids in these applications are between 200 and 400. It is fairly typical. So that's the way that you adjust the turbine speed when things are running normally and you have a, a very good control over your coagulant dosage. Uh, let's look. take a look at when you don't have control over your coagulant dosage. And there's accumulation of charge, and this is what it looks like in the settling test. So two things you'll notice when there's an accumulation of excess charge. You could see up in this left quadrant that there's some marbling going on in the sludge solids. That will go away. It'll become more homogeneous. The other thing is when you take the sample from the from the lower and upper draft tube, it'll be all puffed up. And after five minutes, it may not settle well, and there'll be bulking in the sludge. And that's because there's too much cationic charge versus the one on the right. If we adjusted our charge properly shortly, a couple hours thereafter, the bulking will go away and it will settle like it should. Just a couple other things to look at. When you're looking at these clarifiers, you could look down into there and see where the sludge bed is. Now the sludge bed should always be about two to four feet above the skirt, which allows the water to to go through and filter through the sludge bed, and usually adds a little bit more clarity and color removal when you do that. Other things to know about with solids contact clarifiers, how do we manage the solids? How do we blow down? So there are two different ways to do this. If you're running at a constant flow rate, things are pretty steady state, and, 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 and temperature doesn't change dramatically. You basically look for that at that V over V five test, five minute test, and you target a, a range of solids, say between 200 and 400. And you adjust your blowdown accordingly. You set and forget the turbine speed and the flocculent dosage, and you never want to be adjusting this as a part means of control that's a that is like verboten um so basically you look if the slurry is fluffy you reduce the coagulant dosage to allow it to thicken to normal before adjusting blow down and you adjust the blow down when the solid slurry exceeds say whatever the site specific amount is that might be 400 mils per thousand the other way to do it when there is variable flow and temperature is you do some testing and you, and you maintain it, you test the amount of solids in the in the center, in the reaction zone, and you maintain a target. And that target is what can be, that system can operate at its peak flow or, or biggest temperature differential. And basically, uh, West, uh, West Tech has put together a chart that enables you to uh, look at the slurry interface settling rate, get it to be about, A little bit faster than what the upflow rate is in the clarifier and then from there you can go across and look at your initial slurry concentration that you want that you think you should be targeting. Okay so now we're going to move a completely different subject and look at the raw water and what the composition of it is and how we measure the key things. There are three main classes of impurities. And you really need to be able to distinguish what's what, because that'll affect the coagulant dosage and how the thing operates differently. So one is silt, and this is suspended matter that's fairly large and would settle all on its own. It really has virtually zero coagulant demand and you could flocculate it with a flocculant. Um, then there are inorganics uh, that are colloidal in the, that are clay and silica. These are smaller. These won't settle on their own. Uh, some of them, clay looks like platelets with negative charges on it, and colloidal silica is, is even smaller l- little beads with negative charges on it. It doesn't have it has a significant but low anionic charge on it, so it's pretty easy to um, to to coagulate those, and and you don't have a huge amount of charge demand. These things show up as turbidity that will be on the test. So write that down. The, the other class of materi- matter that we have to deal with is natural organic matter, or NOM. These are a molecular level, but they're, they're very huge molecules, but they're, they don't, they're not big compared to the microparticles. Um, they have a fairly high molecular weight, and they can range very largely for, throughout the molecular weight. Um, they are dissol- They could be dissolved, and they don't show up on the filter, which you might see as true color, or they could be colloidal. But we can remove most of them down to a molecular weight of about uh, 2,000. If you look at the molecules, they all have carboxylic acid groups all over them. They're extremely negative in charge, and they have a tremendous amount of surface area, and they take a lot of coagulant. But they show up as color, and we could test that with a spectrophotometer or our colorimeters. This is what the EPA puts out to kind of classify these things. Um, They have up on the top the molecular weight of stuff in Daltons, and then they have a size in microns. It's kind of interesting to look at this. And then it shows that there are these dissolved organics, which are fulvic and humic acids and colloidal solids we talked about in suspended solids. And um, it's the stuff in yellow is things that we can affect with our coagulant programs. So just to show the difference between turbidity, which is from those inorganics, and color, which is from the, um, the natural organic matter, This jar on the left had a turbidity very high of 127 NTU, but only had 30 ppm coagulant demand with charge pack 55. This jar on the right came in virtually clean at 3 NTU, but a lot of color. And its coagulant demand to break those solids out of the water was 100 parts per million. So you could see that natural organic matter really dominates in in how much demand there is for coagulant. So here are the main KPIs that we look at in influent clarification. There aren't many. There's one primary one, and that is turbidity. The, um, you know, typically we're looking for less than one NTU at the clarifier outlet and less than 0.3 on average after filtration. Turbidity is a surrogate for TSS. It's universally used. It's, um, it is, there is interference with turbidity from color, both positive and negative, depending on the instrument that you use. That's going to be on the test. Ratio turbidimeter. Um, that is a specific type of turbidimeter that does not is not affected by color. We should be using those. Okay. So the secondary test is we could do color tests and the platinum cobalt color, which your dr 900 does. Uh, is what we would be looking for. Usually we want less than, less than 10 units. And if there are demineralizers, which could have organic fouling, we want less than five. It's a surrogate for, for total organic carbon, natural organic matter. It's not always used. Um, you can measure it with your spectrophotometer. Let's take a look at what a nephilometer, which is a, a turbidity meter, looks like. What it does is it projects the light, you can see on the left, through a sample, and then it looks at the scattered light at a 90-degree angle. That's what a nephilometer does. So you can imagine if there's color in this water, it's going to affect the amount of light that's scattered to the detector. A ratio, and that's a conventional turbidimeter. A ratio turbidimeter has multiple detectors. You can see this four, the primary one is at 90 degrees and it eliminates the interference from color. I won't discuss why, because it would take a long time, and I don't really know it that well either. But um, the units are in NTUs, nephilometric turbidity units. So here are some of the things that we use to measure turbidity in the field. And these on the left, this is a detector made by Hawk. It's got four detectors in it. This one's made by Hawk, it's a ratio, these both are ratio on the left. It's got two detectors in it. These two eliminate color interference. This one's from Cole Palmer. It's a conventional turbidimeter. It has one detector. There's negative color interference from that. The the Pixis and the DR9000 are not turbidimeters at all. They look at transmitted light through the sample, so they pick up color. It's positive color interference, and uh, these, these are problematic for really doing good clarification testing. You know, you use them in a pinch, but, they're, but we really should have these Hawk, uh, 90 9100 cues if we're doing clarification testing. Just to show you how significant color affects things. This is a comparison of three of, of rose wine, burgundy wine, and beer. We like to talk, I mean, this makes you think about after work and what the turbidity response is here on the left with 100 parts per million of Formazin, which is a turbidity uh, additive that we use to standardize turbidimeters. So 100 ppm of Formazin gives you 100 NTUs, right? Uh, with a ratio turbidimeter on rosé, burgundy, and beer. So, if you use a conventional turbidimeter, it gives you only about 65 with beer. And it gives you, with rosé wine, down to 10. So you could see the effect of color. It's substantial. Also, conventional turbidimeters and the, and the transmittance ones do not work well if there's carbonaceous, like carbon black, kind of things in the water. Just a point of reference. So, the main takeaways for turbidity there are opportunities for monitoring color. Not everybody does it. It's a main fouling component of anion resin. Uh, we need to be using a Hawk uh, ratio turbidimeter if we're serious in, in these applications. Um, there's serious uh, color interference with the Pixis and, and the DR900. So, now we change gears to coagulant control. There is um, Let's talk about our primary objective. Our pri- and This is on the test. The primary objective is that the coagulant dosage must match the charge load very closely. So as a river water turbidity, river turbidity here on the left y-axis in blue changes every day a lot at certain times, we need to track our coagulant dosage to, t- to, mo- to take care of those changes. Some people in some applications, and in some cases this will work, will trend. You could see the coagulant dosage in red based on their daily JAR test for 24 days and the influent turbidity. And we try to see if there's a correlation. And there is a general large correlation, but it doesn't uh, work. It, all the time because natural organic matter and clay ratios change with regard to each other so in certain applications this may work well Um, and one of the things you could do for your customer is study that daily for a long period of time on a particular river and find the relationships and set up uh, something like an eye controller to do that those relationships and that's a good thing but there are other other ways to uh, coag- to do coagulant control. So here are all the possibilities. You could do a daily jar test. It takes a group of people to be well calibrated, so you could help with your service with that. You could do charge neutralization measurement with a streaming current meter. That takes some maintenance and recalibration. You could take ownership of that. You could try proportional ter- ter- uh, dosage to turbidity. You would have to study the water supply very for a long period of time to do it right. And you could do the same thing with either UV-54 or color absorbance and make and have that proportionally change. That works well on black water rivers that don't have a lot of clay or or um, silica in them. So those are some ideas on what how to control coagulant dosage. Let's talk, we're going to move to talk more about streaming current and charge neutralization. And we have to talk about what's going on with those particles in the water. So this is a colloidal particle. It's negative, got a negative surface charge. And what it does is it attracts a lot of positive counter ions in the water, such as sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and stuff to balance the, the anionic charge. That forms an electrical field. And if you have two particles that have the, elect, the positive electrical field, they tend to repel each, repel each other like similar ends of a magnet. So what we do is we add a cationic coagulant, and that is highly attractive to the, to the particle, and it attaches to all the surface charges. So once we neutralize all the surface charges, the, um, the, the counter ions all go away and now the particles can come together and adhere to each other. I give credit to Chris Light's for creating these slides. He did this, he's very good at that. And, but if we put an excess of coagulant in there, you can see that we would excessively um, attach that to these particles and they would create a new force field of negative counter ions and repel themselves. So that's when dispersion happens. The point where the coagulant and the surface charge matches it is something called the isoelectric point. And you measure the distance from the isoelectric point with a, a, something called the streaming current detector. The sample goes in, this piston goes up and down, it it, shav- it knocks all of the, um, the counter ions off of the particle and it measures the counter ions and that sends it to electronics and these are what they look like. There's a benchtop one called a uh, PCD or MUTEC. It's not that useful in influent clarification, but the online units are good. So what the MUTEC is doing is it's expressing the, the surface charges on these things in terms of millivolts on the left axis. Positive would be cationic, negative would be anionic. The particles in the raw water that are untreated have a lot of anionic surface charge so it's it's measuring say negative 40 and up to negative 400 really and basically we add our coagulant and as we continue to add more and more coagulant we get closer to neutralizing all the charge and we get closer to this isoelectric point the zero charge and in the negative five to zero millivolt range is where things coagulate very well And all the surface charge, as you see up here, is completely neutralized. Then as we add more coagulant, uh, things become more positive. Now, you could apply this to jar tests, too. If you just overlaid that chart, you would see this jar on the left, which is untreated, have low negative millivolts. This one would be, looks good, it's near the isoelectric point, and now we're getting dispersion and more dispersion as our coagulant dosage goes away. So you could use jar tests like this to calibrate your streaming current detector. And the streaming current detector will control the coagulant dosage automatically to keep pace with the changes in the, in the incoming water charge. So let's take a look at what happens when the charges change in in the uh, clarifier. So basically this is a a progression of jars from 5 to 20 ppm. And right about here where we begin to break out clear water is about where the isoelectric point is. So when you go below the water is less clear when you go above we get pin flock carryover. When you go below, the bed shrinks. When you go above, the bed expands and it gets fluffy. You go below, the flock is mobilizing. When you go above, it's, disper- it's dispersing. So a typical operator would do this jar test and say, wow, I like this 20 ppm. That works out, that looks beautiful. And it may on the bench, but the excess charge that it takes to get there cycles up in these solids contact clarifiers and will cause problems. I also want to change gears a little bit and talk about products with a large dosage window. There are certain products in our line, particularly Charge Pack 60, that has an enormous dosage window that will work at 20 ppm all the way up to 40 ppm without causing much problem. Still, as you start getting up in this range, there will be excess charge that will cycle up. So keep that in mind. But there are other products, as you saw in the earlier slide, that have a much more narrow dosage window, and this one is with charge pack 55 Chargeback 55 is twice the concentration of 60. So let's just review best practice for coagulant control. Um, the best practice is to do a daily JAR test to monitor streaming current trending and for the operators to make manual changes, um, and that's really the best practice. So now we'll talk about how to do some jar testing for influent clarification. Again, the primary focus is on getting the coagulant right. And and when you do that, the flocculant will tend to work. So I I have a standard influent shortcut jar test that if you do nothing else, you do this. It It takes 20 to 25 minutes of mixing to do it, but it's really simple. Uh, You rapid mix with the progression of the coagulant dosage for one minute, and then you slow mix it for 20-plus minutes at low RPM. You don't add any flocculant, and then you look for the first discernible breakage of clean water in in a flock, and that is your isoelectric point. And if you work with that dosage you calibrate everybody as to what to look at, and how to do this test? It's very simple for operators to do, and it doesn't really matter if you let it mix for longer than 20 minutes. So this is this is what I encourage everybody to get used to doing. Um, some of our service reps, Jeff Doggett, in particular, does a really good job of doing this progression test for his operators once a week, and and that's his service report. He he takes this photograph and he puts it on the. in an email and says the operators were at this dosage. This is what our jar test did. We showed it to the operators. They, They agreed to make a change or not, and away they go, and they keep things on track. Very rare to have an upset there. I also want to talk about how mixing time matters. These are two sets of jar tests one with 20 seconds of rapid mix, and the other with 187 seconds of rapid mix. And in this test, the optimum, the first one, it was 10 parts per million of coagulant. But if you allowed it to mix longer and redid it, you found that five parts per million worked pretty good. So you could see how you can overdose pretty easily. Now, if we only had 20 seconds to coagulate and start to settle, after we added the flocculant, we would go with this dosage, but in areas where our charge can cycle up in the bed, and this applies to a pulsators as well as solids contact clarifiers, we need to make get our dosage down to what is the, the lowest possible dosage. So now I want to talk about modeling your JAR tests um, and looking at modeling your mixing as well as the surface overflow rates this is for a long form jar test but you'll want to do this when you want to to uh, look at how the polymers are set are causing things to settle in your application so basically the mixing model you look at where the chlorine coagulant caustic are fed you calculate the hydraulic retention time from from for instance the coagulant feed point to the flocculent feed point and that's your mix time and um, and then you determine how many rpm to give it and our group uh, particularly chris lights has put together a nice spreadsheet that shows how to calculate how much mixing energy to put in it how many rpm and you run for the retention time times the rpm and that would be your coagulation And you could do the same thing uh, with some charts that we have with regard to RPM versus for slow mix and and retention time. You could see normal times for um, fast mix are very fast, and normal times for slow mix are very long, from 10 to 40 minutes. And then you let things settle for a period of time, and you sample it at a certain depth to model the upflow. So here are the steps, just like the others. We do a progression, step one, coagulant dosage and pH adjustment if necessary. We mix it for as long as the coagulant has that hydraulic retention time. Then we add a flocculant, and we mix that for as long as there is a hydraulic retention time. It's usually very long, 20 minutes minimum, sometimes longer. And we look for a flock size that is small, about that size, Not much. It could be a little smaller, but not any larger, because when the flocks get larger, they lose their ability to filter and the turbidity goes up too high. And then there's a sedimentation period, uh, which is time uh, settled at time and depth. Now, if I know because I've studied a particular clarifier that the surface overflow rate is not particularly high and the system is not stressed, I'll let the sedimentation sample sit for 10 minutes, and I'll just sample at about three to four centimeters below the surface because I know the filters are going to pick all that stuff up. I know we have issues with the surface overflow flow rate being stressed. Then I will do some specific testing. So let's talk about surf, surface overflow rate. This is pretty straightforward, um, and you want to see is my system stressed? So the American Water Works Association has this chart on the right here of compared to municipal plants the max surface overflow rate is in gallons per minute per square foot it's kind of like filtration rates too and and it'll normal is one and at peak would be 1.5 and stressed is 1.2 and normally in most of our clarifiers we see about a 0.5 if you're getting much above that, your your system might be stressed, and you need to settle a little bit faster in order to keep up with that. So, to calculate surface overflow rate, you calculate the surface using pi r squared, the entire surface. Then you subtract the donut from the middle, which is the the uh, reaction zone. You come up with surface area, such as 500, 5,627 square feet, and then you put the flow rate into the clarifier in GPM, divided by the square feet, and you end up in GPM per square foot. So it's as simple as that. You see where you are on the chart, and suppose we're at 0.5. Then you would take that 0.5, and you would go to this chart, and you would go across, and you would say, okay, am I going to sample at either 7 centimeters deep or 10 centimeters deep? Well, I'm going to sample at 10 centimeters deep. So I should wait five minutes before I sample and then sample at 10 centimeters depth. And that will model the upflow rate that you have to deal with. And here's a good service idea. If you do this at the at four different surface overflow rates or sampling times, you could do that with one jar test, you can plot them on a chart and you could plot turbidity that you get according to that. And you could show a customer, for instance, that's Operating at a high surface overflow rate of say 1.2, how that affects their turbidity. Good, a good little service tool. Um, as, as part of service, I think you should also express your results in a very professional manner, um, and that is, you know, to plot things such as turbidity and color uh, versus coagulant dosage, and, and include that in a report notice in this one that we were unable to achieve color below 29 uh color units in this application so there are certain ones where you really have to work hard at it i put together a list of all the products and reagents that you would need to do for jar test the typical products are highlighted here in pink um, and all of the equipment so use this as a reference i put together a a typical jar test sequence that you could do if you were lazy and didn't want to do the real timing and and how to do things, as well as product dosages. You know, flocculent dosage as dry should never really be more than 0.3 parts per million, usually much less, closer to 0.1. So here's the instructions here. Here's the instructions for a long form standard jar test method and the instructions for the shortcut method that that we talked about. So just to review, um, you have levers to pull and observations to make. You observe turbidity, pin flock, bed expansion, color removal, and that all is balanced on the coagulant dosage that your overriding factor. Turbine speed and flock dosage, you want to leave the same as much as you can, but tune it up for your customer once in a while and when water conditions change a lot, and blow down decisions should only happen when the sludge is settling normally. Okay, so let's now talk about alum replacement strategies. This is where we can make some money. There are two main strategies. One is to replace a commodity alum supplier. And they might have three and a half tank wagons a week of alum going in, and to balance the low pH that that causes, a tank wagon of caustic. In most applications, we could replace that with a single tank wagon of charge pack 55 and give them better service. So, just a point as to what alum does. Here is a pH scale, and the normal operating pH for alum is like five and a half to, to six point eight. And basically, if you put 100 parts per million of alum, in, it will drop the pH down to about 4.5 in some un- unbuffered systems. And then we have to add caustic back to it to bring it into the optimum uh, chemistry to, to provide the sweet flock. So that's why alum and caustic are usually done together, and you need to do pH uh, corrections in your jar test when you're doing alum. Uh, pack like Charge pack 55 only gives about a 0. 0.2 to 0. 0.3 pH unit shift, so it would be very rare to ever need to use caustic. The other situation that we come across is, um, is people like Nalco with products like that Charge pack 60 that I showed you earlier that has a huge dosage window. That has half as much aluminum as our Charge Pack 55, and therefore would normally take two tank wagons for every one tank wagon of Charge Pack 55. Um, in applications where the operators are kind of lackadaisical and we want to make a lot of money, we should work with a product like Nalco is using, but we can usually beat them at their little game. Uh, even though they might be giving as good a service as we can based on economics by, by using Charge Pack 55 instead of their half-strength products. And they tend to use half-strength products in most applications. So if you're trying to sell Influent Clarification applications, you really have to look at the other areas of value and quantify that for the customer. Uh, you're not going to really always be able to compete on a a used cost alone, you have to tabulate that. Some of the things to look for, you know, are they having heat transfer problems? And that could be because solids carryover is happening, or it could be that they're using alum and it's running outside the pH range and they're getting post-precipitation, or that they have soluble aluminum that reacts with the scale control. So you could quantify that, you have to talk to a lot of people. Another area is demineralizer ion loading. So alum contributes six times more anion load than PAC does. And that's because um, alum has a ratio of sulfate to aluminum of of three sulfates to two aluminums, and that's a 1.5. And then it's got two negative charges on the sulfate, a total net equivalent charge of negative three. When you do that with PAC, you come up with a net equivalent charge of 0.53. So that's the difference. Also, if you're using alum, there's a penalty for adding caustic, which contributes a cation load. So basically, if you take the water analysis and plug it into the spreadsheet that I put together um, and how many parts per million of each coagulant you're using, it'll calculate the demineralizer regeneration or run length change that you would get, and you could quantify that in terms of caustic and acid usage. So um, most of the big paper mills that we're in save at least $100,000 a year in regenerant and are really pleased to see their run lengths go up when they do this. Another area is corrosion control because there's less uh, sulfate in the water, less of those anions, corrosivity decreases when compared from alum to charged PAC 9500. This is looking at the Larson skold index. Another area which isn't related necessarily to alum, but for malpractice of their water treatment programs is allowing color and organics to get through, and that fouls anion resin causing early replacement brine squeezes, short runs, and a lot of money. You could quantify those costs. And when that fouling happens so much, then they have to bring in mobile demineralizer trucks. How much is that costing them? Um, another area is, is filter fouling. And you, filter fouling occurs because there, is, um, there might be excess polymer getting in from, through the clarifier to the filter. So this test kit, which is available from Test Kit Supply, has these 10 micron deep filters, which you can use to model a sand filter and do a simulation. And if there's no polymer in there, the water filters through under vacuum uh, in like 6 to to 10 seconds, uh, 500 milliliters. If there's any polymer in there, it'll slow it down, sometimes over a minute or jam the filters up quickly so it's a very sensitive test that you can run to show people that they're having that they're feeding excess polymer and they're not reacting at all this is explores that this slide in much more depth and I'm not going to talk about it uh, extensively now but I would also tell you that the Dawn dishwashing soap is anionic it foams a lot but it will clean up cationic polymer problems from filters Another area where people can have issues is with RO, because they're not making good enough water. And the silt density index test is what you need to do. And some of the costs associated with that are the pre-filters that they put on these ROs. And the need to replace them, many, many of them, could end up costing $100,000. And then there are other areas, CIP chemicals and membrane replacement costs and reliability. And the last thing that, that you can quantify is end product brightness units because you're making cleaner water. So who does the customer need? Do they need this Nalco guy with his two tank wagons but providing pretty decent service? Do they need the Selenus team? Or do they need the commo- the faceless commodity guy that they just call in and place orders with? Well, if you look at all of the, the potential areas for savings, you could see how you could generate a value proposition and, and show some serious cost savings to most influent clarification applications. So I just wanted to cover a couple miscellaneous insights. One thing that we see is Nalco uses their Pareto um, optimizer, which optimizes how the coagulant is um, gets Distributed in the influent water, we have VMAX. And if you have very short retention times uh, in the pipe that doesn't pr- uh, leave a lot of time for mixing, you should be looking at using these because NALCO will come in and probably improve performance with their Pareto. And we should be preemptive in, with using our VMAX. And there are a whole number of other issues that I didn't cover. This is a, a very extensive topic. And we could cover some other specifics and shorter webinars in the future. I just want to thank you for spending the time with me. And uh, when the water looks like this, this is the best because the customers think you're a hero being able to treat that water. But actually, this is some of the easiest water to treat that you'll ever run across. So thank you again. I'm going to end the presentation and take questions.
0: Jeff, yeah, this is Jeff Matthews. I really enjoyed that presentation. I learned a lot from that. Can you send uh, Can you send that out to us? There's a few things that I didn't quite catch when you were going through the slides, and if I could uh, look at them, I might come up with some future questions.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to post it. Now, this last version that I just did has a few corrections from, from the, the version that Larry Larry has, so allow me to, uh, to send it out. So it'll be available in a... Um, in a PDF form uh, as as well as uh, PowerPoint and in uh, the audio and video that, that we just
0: did. So we're and, also posted uh, on the Wastewater uh, SharePoint as well. So we'll give each person uh, a web link that they can go to for the video version of this. Jeff,
1: what will be the performance increase with the VMAX? Um, well it depends on how much mix time you, you have, um, but with uh, with regard to polymer usage, you know, flocculent usage, um, if you if you had a clarifier that perhaps was not a solids contact clarifier, um, you know, you could you could reduce flocculent usage by up to 50% with that, you know, because you, you didn't have a long dwell and mix time. Um, but You know it's very system specific and uh and if it's you know if you're really having trouble getting colloidal silica removal and color removal um with our program because you have a very short initial retention time uh with the with the coagulant mixing step then then they're there could be a significant decrease in 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 chemistry usage but i actually there wouldn't be much of a decrease in chemistry usage in a solids contact clarifier because if you added if you were adding more chemistry you would you would be having operational issues such as bed fluffing and and pin flock carryover you would see a big operational improvement with that and and you would tend to overdose less so that those are kind of the areas it's very it's very system specific you need to do a jar te- some jar testing like I pointed out uh, that real simplistic jar test and figure out where the coagulant breakpoint is and how much they're really feeding and, and you sh- and if you give it enough mixing you should be able to always hit that coagulant breakpoint thing so if you look at the mass balance versus your jar test that, that'll be the savings if you could get it back far enough really all right thanks
0: now now Jeff if you're working on a a
1: clarifier that is not a solids contact you'd probably use the higher dosage right so is is that
0: what you were saying
1: yes that is correct and you know this really does a a lot of service to solids contact clarifiers in this presentation but the um, if, if you were just going in the pipe and feeding the coagulant and didn't, you could add an excess of coagulant to those particles and it wouldn't matter because it would then settle down and be out of the way. But if you were recycling that sludge back in with the incoming water, then you would start to cycle up excess charge. Right. So, so you were correct, Chris.
0: Right. Okay. Oh, I, I just have a comment uh, that if you
1: calculate the gallons per minute per square foot, like, like Jeff said, that
0: that's a good benchmark.
1: You can actually convert that gallons per minute per square foot into a distance over time very easily. You could convert that to centimeters a minute or feet per hour or whatever units you actually want. Nice point, Chris, because that's how we got from that second chart to the depth that you would sample uh, is really just doing exactly what Chris said. We're looking at at how many centimeters per minute uh, the water is moving up. So so basically you have to have your solids settling faster than how many centimeters per minute the water is moving up. So if you just sample at a certain depth at a certain time, uh, it'll tell you what's going to come out of your clarifier. And again, I, I would just I, I would not do that test because it adds complexity to the to it unless you noticed that your upflow rates in that clarifier are are particularly stressed then you definitely want to do that. And then you want to show your customer that you have a treatment program that might, settle better and faster under those conditions than what they're using now.
0: Jeff, i got a question. It's Jennifer. We've done, in North America, we've done some conversions of using PAC to replace alum with substantial improvements in the coagulation and cost uh, to the customer. When would we consider moving up to ACH or any of the PAC-ACH blended uh, quags that we've got with polyamines or polydadmax. What would be the set of conditions to consider those ones?
1: Well, depending on the size of the customer, if they're smaller customers, the uh, the blends that we have make sense. And, and adding, I didn't, this is a whole other subject that we didn't have time for today, but adding some of the organic polymers to the inorganic to create those blends uh, creates some uh, some magic in the chemistry. For instance, it'll it'll cause the pin flocks to get uh, less but more dense, and it'll also help with uh, color and silica removal and stuff like that. So normally, the way that we approach this in huge customers that are you know you know twenty million gallons a day kind of thing is we'll feed the ACH chemistry, which is charge pack fifty five and ninety five hundred, with a small amount of of the organic separately and they'll feed that only when they get into into trouble or they might feed it all the time if they just like the way it behaves because the blending cost of putting the two together in the plant and then shipping from only a specific plant where we do blending usually makes the whole the whole doing that uncompetitive and to answer your first part of your question about pack versus ach i i think that you're uh, we're, we're just conflating the, the, uh, the nomenclature and techno- uh, terminology here. We will call charge ACH PAC, and ACH is really just a um, completely neutralized form of PAC, it, and then it's got its own name. But it, but it technically is PAC, and that's what we're using in most of these replacement programs everywhere uh, is, is ACH, and we're calling it PAC. The only true pack that we have in our product line is Charge Pack 60 and one product called Charge Pack 10. And it works well if if we use up the inventory quickly, like within a few months. But other than that, it it tends to precipitate out in the bulk tank. And Nalco has centered their a lot of their treatment technology on using that because cost per pound is lower and you a little lower and you use twice as much of what we call our pack. Um, so we're not doing much of what you think we are. We're using the most concentrated form right now at almost all of our customers, except for a, a, a handful. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: OK. OK,
0: any more questions? Okay, I just wanted to give another shout-out for uh, these webinars. We're going to have another one on October 11th. Uh, It's going to be Christopher Light's, and he's going to be giving uh, a webinar on activated sludge and bioaugmentation 101. So it's October 11th at 9 a.m., and you already have the invites for uh, that webinar. Put it on your calendars. Thanks, Jeff. And I, and
1: I, and I, I just want to also give myself a plug. After that, I think in December, uh, I'm doing another one on, uh, on s- centrifuge uh, poly- polymer selection and, and how centrifuges work for, for biosolids. So, um, you know, and, and if other people, as Larry said, want some different topics, send us, uh, send us some uh, requests and we'll be happy to put another webinar together.
0: Thank you for attending today's podcast. Again, if you would like further information, you can visit the IWT Technical Training Resources site and then visit the Water and Wastewater Training Resources site to access this presentation.